Hello and welcome to the Mime Radio Show. I'm Karen Hoyer. And I'm James Donlan in California. And Karen, you are? In Chicago. Chicago. And our guest is in Canada. But before we introduce that person, who I'm really excited to talk to, let's talk about Michael Diaz, our producer. What do you think, Karen? He's great. He he makes us look so good, you know. Yeah. So we we really appreciate you, Michael. Yeah, he's behind here. And, and down uh, there, or maybe something. Maybe he's over so there. So thank you, Michael, wherever you are. Today's guest is a fascinating mime and theater artist. Let me check his bio and introduce you to him. Here's a quote from the Boston Globe. A proven crowd pleaser. And they're talking about Trent Arterberry. Trent Arterberry's earliest performances in Harvard Square earned him hundreds of fans and hats full of change. By spicing up his act with sound, music, and special effects, he began to open for rock bands on college campuses. After hundreds of college appearances, and I mean probably hundreds, he was named Performing Artist of the Year by the National Association of Campus Activities. Arterberry was regularly seen on Boston television and performed on cruise ships around the world. He also toured with major recording stars such as Julio Iglesias, B.B. King, and The King to venues such as Radio City Music Hall in New York. Originally performing as a silent mime artist, Arterberry now creates shows that blend his trademark physical expressiveness with comedic speaking characters and extended narratives. Over the last 12 years, Trent has directed over 20 unique shows with school children aged K to 12. And with that, let's welcome in our guest today, Trent Arterberry. Hi, guys. Hey, hello, are. Trent. It's so nice to have you here on the show with us. Thanks. Nice to be here. And you're in Vancouver, right? Vancouver, BC? <laughs> I am in Victoria, or to be more specific, I am in East Souk, British Columbia, which is on Vancouver Island. Ah. This is interesting and, because and I you go ahead. If you don't know, Vancouver Island is a large island. Uh, it's not really related to the city of Vancouver, which is on the mainland. Vancouver Island is 10 or 20 miles off the coast of British Columbia, and it's as large as Long Island. And I might say that this is interesting to me because I first met Trent in San Diego at the other end of the North American continent, more or less. <laughs> and now he's switched gears from sunny San Diego to, what would you say, mysterious and wet and crystal blue skies occasionally in Vancouver. Beautiful BC is what they call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Are you, Trent, are you from Canada? I was born in Pasadena, California. Oh. Spent most of my first 20 years there. Got married, moved to Boston, where I lived for 25 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the age of 47 or something, moved to uh, British Columbia, where I've been ever since. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so you've taken some very long trips to you, to each home, right? <laughs> Cross countries. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, one of our first questions that we always like to ask is about how artists prepare. And we were talking a little bit before we started about nerves and how nerves can be good. But how do you prepare re before a performance? What do you do? And specifically, what do you say or think or do right before you step out on stage? Well, 
<laughs> you know, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that's a good question. Um, I, as I was saying, I do get really nervous right before I go on. Not, not so much if I'm doing, you know, I've done, I've probably done 5,000 school shows. So they don't make me very nervous because I, you know, I know it's going to go well and it's an easy audience for me at this point anyway. Uh, but if I'm doing a show for adults or in an unfamiliar venue or, you know, something a little different, I get very nervous. And I, uh, I actually deliberately don't go to the dressing room to get ready until about 10 or 15 minutes before. So I have just enough time to put on my makeup, get on my costume, exit the dressing room, cinching my belt as I'm walking, strapping on my radio mic and arriving on stage 30 seconds before I have to go on. Wow. And you've done, you know, thousands of performances, you know, so. I've tried to figure it out, but I, you know, somewhere between six and 10,000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this includes all kinds of venues, right? You I mean, you started as a street mime, right, in Boston, but then you performed with, you know, cruise ships and theaters and probably... So when, yeah. Go ahead, when you were When you were first um, uh, doing touring and, and performing for schools and colleges, and did you develop that way of getting prepared, or did you have a more elaborate routine when you were younger? Uh, I think... I think the issue when I was first starting out, I was perpetually late. <laughs> and uh, my show, you know, my little school show, I did it in the full round, mm-hmm. which was kind of interesting. Uh, and yeah, it worked particularly, really- particularly for mime. Mime is often just like you need the proscenium straight on as opposed to. For, for for certain types of illusions, yeah. mm-hmm. but uh, I, I you know I did a lot of turning and I did some audience some toy storytelling audience participation with the kids, mm-hmm. and you know you put them in a circle. I'm going to talk three four hundred kids in a circle around you, and everybody's close, mm-hmm. you know, and and all the energy is coming in, right? So it's 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 very energizing, if your show is adaptable for it. Uh, so. Uh, it would take me 30 minutes to get set up and get my makeup on. And I would, I was constantly arriving 20 minutes before the show time. <laughs> now I can relate with that. I think you, you and I are very similar in that way because I know, especially if I've been in performances with other actors or performers, they're always worried about me because I'll show up, you know, especially in my more advanced uh, age, I'll show up right, almost right before the show, you yeah. know, Go out there, you know. It's an interesting. Ah, thing. My experience was always the difference because I was like, I had a company, and I had to be the one that had to be the boss to say we, you know, pick everybody up and drive them to the gig or whatever. Yeah, so, you, well, and you would say you would say preparate. You I mean you're you're prepared. You're a, a excellent, very good, very very good performer. So you would this confidence of being to slip on the stage so quickly is, did you feel always prepared though? Like, I mean, you, it seems to me you probably have prepared yourself really well to face I, the public, yeah? I work really well under pressure. Yeah. Which is part of what makes me a good performer. So the pressure didn't bother me. And uh, to elaborate on your original question, at a certain point, a couple of years into it, I realized, I was like, why am I doing this to myself? You know, because I'm running around putting tape on the floor and running to the dressing room. You know, it's like, this is ridiculous. And I started showing up on time. 
And now, now I always show up for gigs on time. Yeah, yeah. It's just stupid not to. Uh, would, that, would your um, experience at opening for rock and roll shows, m music acts, did that have something to do with the kind of free notion of time? Uh, no, that was later on. But let me just finish this thought before I forget, yeah. which is that uh, I thought about what I do before I go on, because you've asked other people that question. And really, and someone else said this, but it's true that I kind of try to empty myself mm -hmm. so that I come out in kind of a neutral place. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, yeah. And, and something about rushing around getting set up was a way of emptying myself or oh. oddly, odd, oddly, a way of not focusing on what I'm about to do on stage oh. because I had to, I'm doing all this, I'm getting ready and it's like, oh, hey, yeah, yeah. I'm on stage. Well, I'm going to do a show. Oh, and, that's kind of interesting. I like that. That's yeah, because I, I really hate that. Oh, geez, I got to go on in 10 minutes. I got to go on in 15. Right. I got to go on in an hour. I, you know, yeah. that's, that's well, so you were telling us that you've been doing a, a bunch of shows where you're um, directing kids, kids from kindergarten through 12th grade. They're, they're like super hyper before they go on to put on a show there. It's like a manic amount of energy. What, what, how do you get them to prepare? How do you get them to learn what's best for them? Well, uh, there's a few things I do with kids before they go on. I, 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 I rehearse the heck out of them to begin with. So mm -hmm. I prepare them as well as I can. And as I've done this, I've learned, you know, you learn something every time you do a show. Like I, I did a show and I realized I hadn't taught the kids to hold for laughter. Yeah. So it was a very funny show. And the, and, the, and the actors just kept rolling over all the laugh lines. Mm -hmm. And now when I work with kids before they go on, you know, before, at some point in the process, I actually work with them on holding for laughs. So we have that. You think being a mime, I mean, we'll get more into your background and the maybe different stages of your career. You feel as a physical artist, especially as a mime, maybe without speaking at all, that's a controversy in itself. Like do mimes, can mimes speak? I mean, we'll talk about that because, you know, I have a lot of feelings about that too, but you feel that being a mime helped you to listen better in the beginning, you know, to that audience, that you were able to find the moments of pause and to understand how the flow was going just by the nature of the kind of performance you were doing earlier as a silent mime? Uh, I, I don't know. I certainly listened to the audience and, you know, any, any performer, I assume, you know, you, you feel, you, even if you're doing something serious, you can feel whether or not the audience is attentive. Yeah, I'm just saying, like, in mime, of course, you're so aware of space and time, you know, not only your own sphere that you're working in, but the audience is part of that dynamic. And it just seems logical that a mime performer would be, have this heightened awareness of that element of the space, meaning the public. Hence, you could, you were more aware of their reactions and their energy. You know, it just seemed like to me, it, I, you know, I, I don't know if you ever thought about that, but it just occurred to me that that could be a great training ground for actors in general, just to do mine in, in order to understand these things we're talking about, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do, do you, when you do your performing, like, 
say your the shows that you've done many times um is it very set are there moments for improvisation how is your connection to the audience do you have a fourth wall or do you connect directly oh i connect with them um uh i do have a couple of shows that are sort of fourth wall shows mm -hmm. that don't have any audience participation mm -hmm. uh, but even in those shows i occasionally break out and talk to the audience or talk to them at the end i you know my my most recent show is called the tightrope and it's an autobiographical show mm -hmm. uh, talking about the first 20 years of my career and the effect it had on my first marriage mm -hmm. and uh uh, my director for that show wanted me to open the show with this. The show opens with a birth routine, and then you discover that a psychiatrist is just hypnotherapy, taking me back in time, uh, you know, to, to re-experience my birth. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I had two ways of opening. One was with the psychiatrist. No, no, no. One was with me talking to the psychiatrist and going into it. The other way was me doing, you know, opening with the birth bit, and then you discover... Mm -hmm. which, which was the way the director wanted it. And I sort of, you know, in media rests, you know, you, you know, it sort of starts in the middle of things. And I like that. But what I was what what I missed about I really like coming out and establishing a connection with the audience. So what I ended up doing was two minutes before showtime, I walk out and I say, hi, everybody. And, uh, you know, uh, show is going to start in a minute. But I just want to tell you a funny story. And I tell a story about it comedian named Tom Parks, who had to do a show in a 1000 seat auditorium for five kids. <laughs> and I said, Tom, what do you do? And he said, Well, I jumped off the stage, I shook hands with everyone in the audience individually. <laughs> and I said, you know, there's a pizza parlor across the street. Why don't we go over there? I'll buy you pizza and tell you jokes over dinner. That's great. <laughs> I, remember, I remember performing in Ireland years ago. And there were five people in the audience on this dreary night in a big union hall. And we all went to the pub afterwards and drank Guinness, you know, right after the show. It was the same thing. What I mean, like, here's like, for example, you started as a street mime, correct? I mean, we'll talk more about that. But or, uh, would you say that you were the kind of that that kind of mime in the beginning? Not, not necessarily creating a full show. No, don't get me wrong. Well, he's laughing already. I don't. I don't want to. I have, I have a. I have a. I have a. I have a James Donlan story. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to hear that too. But it seems to me, if you're performing in Harvard Square, like your bio says, you have to be totally aware of the audience. I mean, there's no fourth wall. I mean, a street performer or the Harvard Square performer can't perform without recognition of the audience. I mean, there's that. It's improvisation. Immediately, right? I'm just thinking that that also contributed to your ability to work under pressure and to listen well, you know, based on that early experience, right? Uh, Talking for you. <laughs> sure, I, sure. I, I, su I suppose so. <clears throat> you're, on, you're on a track here, James. Kind of. Yeah, well, I, we, have a, you know, we have a little script here we have to follow, but... but You're off script already, so who cares? Let me shift gears. No, so... What here's the next question. What does that audience represent to you? Like, not only mean like they're kids or they're adults or they're from Edmonton, Canada or San Diego, like what that energy that's in front of you. You have any thoughts about what 
kind of humanity that is or what the purpose of the performer is pretty esoteric philosophical stuff. I'm sorry, this is the way I think. So <laughs> I'm just probing. I mean, do you have any notion about that dynamic and what that group represents for you as the performer? I guess it probably depends on how um, how receptive or how hostile they are. Yeah. So I I don't uh, I don't have a strong sense of who the audience is usually. I mean I mean oftentimes it's a group of kids, sometimes it's adults, sometimes it's a group of salesmen or executives. I mean I've done shows like that in front of right computer people or. Um, so in other words, you're not. Are you there to inform, entertain, educate, massage, uh, confuse, confront, challenge, and generally, or was it all of that? Depending ex on exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I got to ask this one question because I know it's ahead of jumping ahead, but I want to hear a disaster story about your experience in rock and roll. Like, I want to know what was the craziest thing that happened when you were in that situation that you can think of. Um, get that off of my, my chest right now. Uh, well, maybe since I don't know about that part of your career, maybe you can let us know, like, how did that come about that you as a mime were doing an opening act for a rock concert? How did that happen? Good question, Karen. <laughs> Back in the day, uh, I, I started in San Diego. My first teacher was Don McLeod. And uh, Don was the original, Don was the real rock and roll mind. He had a whole rock band behind him. Oh. And, and he had a wonderful piece called Satan's Creation, which was a 45 minute piece backed by rock music. And it was about the evolution of the world and the ultimate destruction of the world. Wow. Yeah, it was, it, it was pretty amazing. It was the second, the first part of his show was a series of vignettes. And uh, anyway, I, I saw a mime at Mesa College uh, named Claude Saint-Denis, Claude, Claude Saint-Denis probably, and, uh, and, and I was, you know, 20 years old or something, and I was amazed. And thought I saw the same guy, I think, at Humboldt State, actually. Yeah. The same guy. It was like a 2 o'clock afternoon Sunday show. With, with his daughter? Was his daughter there? No, I just, but this guy, that was the guy from Canada. He's from Canada, correct? Yeah, Quebec. Sk yeah. Skinny guy, little skinny guy. Yeah, he had white face. I mean, it was a yeah. very Marceau look. Classic, yeah. classic mime. Anyway, it was, a, it was a good show. And uh, I went home and I thought, I'm going to figure these things. I'm going to figure out some of these tricks, right? And I, th I thought, I'm going I'm to do a lean. And, I, you know, I'm going, okay, well, let's see. You lock the elbow in place. I get that, but something's wrong here. And then, I, okay, I have to drop my chest. Elbow in place, drop my chest, and I've got to lean, right? Anyway, I met Don McLeod at a party, and I showed him this move. And he goes, hey, that's pretty good. Come down to the park with me on Sunday. I'll let you hold my titles. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, so I did. I held his titles for his pieces. And then he said, you know, you could, you could help me in this, this cowboy. We could do a cowboy routine together. I'll be the good guy. You'll be the bad guy, and so forth. By the way, just explain to the audience what, like, some of the younger people that might be watching this they don't know what you mean by titles titles so in the classic in marceau, tradition yeah yeah in the classic marceau tradition each sketch each number each piece is uh introduced with a a placard or a banner or whatever that has the title of the of the sketch written mm -hmm. on it like the park or bip the elephant tamer etc um 
So those are the titles. So Don McLeod, what was your original question? It was about how I got into rock and roll. Yes, that's yeah. it. Then we'll talk about disaster or interesting. And, and disaster experiences. Um, so I moved to Boston and I had a buddy from, I had a buddy who knew a buddy who got a, uh, an album contract. Uh, a musician named John Pousset Dart. And um, he said, hey, would you come down and pose for my album cover? There it is. And that is the cover. And I have to tell you that that photo was done on Walden Pond in January. I'm, I'm standing on, I'm sitting, I'm standing oh, yeah. on the pond, snow and ice at my feet. It, it was sub-zero temperatures, and I'm wearing I'm wearing nylon leotards and tights. Yeah, <laughs> it was freezing cold, but you can tell by the manic look on my face that you know we got a really striking album cover. Oh yeah, That's and I, I, I remembered that cover, and when I found out it was you, I was like. I was amazed. I was like, yeah. I thought that was just somebody putting on makeup and posing, but yeah. And this is before this is before you really got into the mainstream of performance. So this is like very early. I was um I was doing school shows. I was making okay. a, I was making a meager living doing school shows in Boston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um but then I got this opportunity to do this album cover and I was um John asked me to open up his act. I started I started opening up his show at various nightclubs in Cambridge. Uh -huh. And then his agent came to me and said, hey, I could get you some bigger gigs on college campuses. So all of a sudden I was opening up for bigger acts on college campuses. The 70s, correct? I mean, this is we're talking the decade of the 70s. This was in uh, like 75. You know, it's interesting before we leave Claude St. Denis, you know, I saw that shame show, I think, and I was a jock at that time. I wasn't in theater or anything. And I what I went to that show for I don't know why. And I remember saying, just like you, I remember saying, I think I can do that. <laughs> you yeah. know, and then that's how it all started. So maybe this guy were this Claude is the the father of <laughs> mind, you know, I don't know. You know, it's like well it's funny it's funny how you how you get influenced and influence other people yeah. as you go along, you know, it's uh I'll never forget that. I remember going like I can do that. And I, and I wasn't even in theater at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's how I got started. I learned a lot from Don. And while, while, I was at Mesa, while I was at Mesa College, I saw another mime troupe perform there. And it was James Donlan and Tony Francesconi. Yeah. Bob Francesconi. Uh, yeah. Bob, Bob Francesconi. Yeah. And uh, it was a great show. And, uh, and it's you were funny. a student there. You were a student. I didn't realize you were a student there. Yeah. I was a student there. It was, it was the early seventies and yeah. it's about to get drafted. And I jumped into junior college to avoid doing that. It would have been around 72, like 72, yeah. somewhere around there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's when they came out with the draft, the, yeah. the, the lottery, my, my birthday came up as number six in the lottery. So mine was number 356. So. Oh yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So you, uh, you had to jump into school. Yeah. Wow. But you never were drafted. I was not drafted. I, yeah. I went to a pre-induction physical and I convinced the guy that I was unsuitable. Yeah. And, and, and then a year later, uh, I fell off the side of a building, shattered my right heel bone and permanently disabled yeah, myself. Well, we have a lot of similar stories. We'll talk about that another time. <laughs> but, um, all right. So you, so you, you wanted a disaster. Rock and, 
Good, Wait, yeah. James, James, you wanted a disaster story. Yeah, so well, I'm, that's in what your, I'm reading. In your touring, anything yeah, you, horrible that happened. You're entering this rock and roll world, and then, which we all have experienced, well, at least our generation. So what, what was that like? What, and tell us like a particular event, maybe that strikes in your mind of something that was a really cool and weird experience that you might have had. Well, okay. Um, <laughs> uh, this was a little later, but I, um, at a certain point, I had a man. I had a manager. And he said, okay, we're going to New York. And um, <laughs> we're going to go talk to Saturday Night Live. And uh, we're going to have to figure out how to get in the building. And I said, well, let's, let's do a mimogram. And I had some graphic art skills and I made up, I made up a, mimogram, a mimogram form. And so we go down there, we drive down there, Rockefeller Center, and I'm putting on my white face and all of this stuff. And we, we talk our way in through the door. They call upstairs and say, yeah, yeah, we got a uh, mimogram, some kind of mimeogram for uh, Saturday Night Live. <laughs> and uh, they let us in. Wow. And, and we go up and uh, Bill Murray came over and said, uh, hey, you got something for me? And I kind of shoot him away. <laughs> Unfortunately, I should have talked to him. And then, and then we get ushered into the office and uh, I'm kind of doing the robot and I hand her my press kit and my manager's talking to her and, and uh, he says, yeah, you can see him tonight. He's opening for Graham Parker at the Copacabana. So um, Graham Parker and the rumor, Graham Parker was, um, I guess he was kind of a punk rock musician. Not a lot of people know him, but um, he, he made some pretty seminal music. I mean, he, uh, he influenced a lot of people. Anyway, I'm at the Copa. And uh, I'm getting ready to go on, and 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 my manager says, "Oh, by the way, um, when when everyone when when everyone comes through the door, he says, he says they're giving noisemakers to everybody at the door." I said, "What?" He said, "Yeah, and when they sit down, everyone has to buy two drinks." What? <laughs> so all I have to do is go out and entertain a half-drunk punk rock crowd from New York, armed with noisemakers, <laughs> with, with my silent mime show. Wow. So uh, I get out there, do what I can. The audience ignores me, and I realize that I'm never going to be on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> was, was your early work uh, mostly like just image driven, like like I don't want to say sight gags, but was you know knowing how powerful illusion mime can be? Was was the earlier work that you did like in Harvard Square and maybe you know for these rock and roll bands? Was it just these kind of really graphic physical you know illusions that got the audience primed for the music um well yeah my early work was simple you know mime in the box the apple and the worm that kind of stuff um i had the pleasure of seeing keith berger in boston one day he came up and did a impromptu thing in the park which i miraculously was there for and yeah. I watched him. I watched him do his incredible robot illusion, and ended up uh, bringing him home and giving him dinner. But yeah, yeah. Uh, after that, I started working on a robot illusion myself and got pretty good at it. And so that became a, a signature part of my show. Did you ever watch Robert Shields? Were you ever able to watch him? And back in those days? No, I, I did not. I, I did see Robert Shields once. I we were traveling around the country. 
was a couple decades ago, and he and his wife were performing in Reno. And I said to my wife, listen, I'm going to go to this show. You keep you keep, you go on to California. I'll, t I'll catch a bus tomorrow. So I, I watched their show and I went backstage and he uh, he was all keyed up, I guess, because he kept me in his dressing room for four hours. And we we, you know, talked, talked shop for about four hours. And that was really fun. So would you say that this this early work that you're describing, did that prepare you for the shift into more? You know, I heard, I just heard the form. I heard the form. I just, someone just described, I have, I, let me start. I have a student that's a popper and locker, like a hip hop, you know, street dancer kind of person in San Francisco. And in her bio, she says, study with me, James Allen, the long form mind, she said. Okay. <laughs> so I, I guess I'm a long form mind. So I guess what I'm saying is, you were slowly shifting into a more long form, in other words, narrative, more narrative, more storytelling and less, you know, visual pyrotechnics into more uh, theatrical kind of a um, performance. Did that, when did that happen? What prompted you to do that? Well, I, I've seen a number of mimes or clowns who've done shows that, you know, had an overarching narrative over a 60 or 90 minute period and always thought that was just great. I had no idea how to do it myself. Uh, I've always been more of a sketch artist, but it was kind of a goal in my mind. And I made some really futile stabs at it a few times. But finally, and I was talking to a psychic actually, and she said, well, tell the story of your life. And um, I thought, oh, okay, not an entirely original idea, but not a bad one. So in 1998, I put together a show called Mime Out Loud, and I talked and I, I, well, it was autobiographical, and I talked in between the sketches and used the sketches to illustrate the things I was talking about and so forth. I, I got terrific, that was my first Fringe performance in 98 in the Victoria Fringe Festival. I got terrific reviews, uh -huh. and I took the show to Vancouver the following year and got creamed by the press. <laughs> I was going to, I was going to, I was going to try to pull out the review. I wanted to read it to you. It's just the worst review ever. That's a disaster story. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. But, um, what gave you the freedom to shift into verbal? I mean, I'm, I'm the same man. My career is very close to what you're describing too. Just how you've made this leap from silent, kind of really high te highly technical physical things into more verbal explanation at times, but yet there's still a physical base, correct? Yeah. Uh, I have to say I'm a better mime or mover than I am an actor, but I, hmm. I, I, I'm okay. I pull it off. Uh, I, and I, I, should, I should clarify for you that, you know, Don McLeod would wear white face and verbally introduce his sketches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. And although that seemed a bit odd, I did the same thing. And, you know, with my kids shows, my kids shows had lots of talking and lots of mind pieces. But, you know, so I, I was talking early on when I started playing colleges. I went to a silent show and I did that for about 10 years. But uh, in 83, I started I, I did a TV piece where I uh, impre impressioned, impersonated, uh, you know, the different shows and the, and the viewer watching them. <laughs> and I used sound effects mm -hmm. and uh, there was, I saw a juggler at a big convention, this was about 83, and he had this, he, 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 was, he was doing his juggling, 
and he's talking to the audience and he walks off the stage into the audience of like 500 people and he's talking and juggling in the audience and you can hear him mite. And I thought, oh my God, that's incredible. So I, uh, I went and bought myself a radio mic. Mm-hmm. I think I can't verify this, but I think I'm probably the first mime in the world to own his own radio mic. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you're, you're a natural. I mean, you, you're self-deprecating about your acting ability, but you're a natural st- storyteller. That's like this, not just your physical storytelling, but your verbal storytelling is the the way you relate to audience is very friendly and open. It's I mean, I only seen you on video, but that's what I get the sense yeah. of. Nice. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, thank you. Th- yeah. Th- thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so, so then, so then, James, in, I, I did this verbal show in uh, '98, and, and I got killed in '99. I didn't play another. I didn't play another fringe for 12 years. Oh my! <laughs> <laughs> but in, in 2010, I uh, after everything crashed after the financial crisis, I thought I got to make something new. So I created a show called The Secret Life of Walter Manny. And it was, uh, I, I didn't even know what I was, I, I just thought, I got to do a new kids show. And I thought, okay, what would kids, I, I built it from, <laughs> I built it from the wrong direction probably. But I just thought about, okay, what would kids like? Well, they'd like a secret agent scene. They'd like an underwater scene. They'd like a, <laughs> a cops yeah. and robber scene. They'd like this. And I thought, how am I going to fit all this together? And then I thought, Walter Mitty. Mm-hmm. I use Walter Mitty. So, so the secret life of Walter Manny is 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 the story. Is Walter Mitty is a ten year old boy? Ah, yeah. And uh, that had lots of language, and it was the it was the that was the first show where I played like six different characters with the voices, and that and that you know forty five minutes straight. It's a play. Uh-huh. It's a physical theater play. But did you have in your early days? Did you have rules? You know, so called. Thinking of myself too, I, you know that you couldn't speak or you couldn't do this. And <clears throat> did you have a? It's because of maybe what you'd been exposed to or seen. Did you have rules? But now you've broken whatever rules you had, or maybe you never did have rules. But it seems um, that you're a very eclectic performer with a physical base. But <clears throat> was that a hard? Excuse me. Was that a hard shift you from the more pure mind to the more adventurous kind of performance was that a tough decision or was it just something that you gravitated toward as a- it, it, it wasn't hard for me but i remember being a one showcase when i was doing the tv with the sound effects mm-hmm. and this agent that i knew came up to me and he goes do you like all the yap do you really like all that yap <laughs> <laughs> like you know like like shut up and just do a mime show right so i i, I don't know I, I i always felt that mime was um it's a very constrained art form. How so? How do you mean that? Excuse me. How so? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can't talk, and <laughs> and you can't use any props, and uh, you know, all, all all you've got is your body to work right. with. Right. Right. Remember, this is an education. Oftentimes, oftentimes yes. you don't have anyone else on stage with you. Right. 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 So, go on. Remember, this is an educational show. We're trying to educate people about the beauty of mind. So, you know, a lot of people don't think about stuff like this. So that's why we're at it. And the other hand, there's a lot of people, certain teachers that say, you have to do it like this. It has to uh, be uh, 
silent or it has to be with the makeup or it has to be, you know, like rules. I don't know. Sure. I understand what you're saying. And, you know, it reminds me, I, I, I know you interviewed uh, Daniel Stein. Right. He posted, and I, I haven't watched that yet, but I thought Daniel Stein, I, I took a three week workshop with Daniel Stein a decade or two ago, and it was wonderful. He's a wonderful teacher. And uh, his attitude about corporeal mind was so refreshing and wonderful. And he was just kind of like, you know, all these guys have it wrong. I, I don't think DeCrew wanted people to be quiet. And I don't think DeCrew wanted people to be serious. Uh, you know, I, you know, he, he liked humor. I mean, he, you know, he was interested in expanding the art form, not limiting it. Yeah, I think so, you're right. I mean, some of the other people we've interviewed, like Leonard Pitt, who's going to come up, they have the same thing. You know, they, they, they were kind of liberated by the crew, interestingly enough. You know, they yeah. beyond the structure, you know, the obvious structures. Well, it's, right. par it's partly also you can't really make your teacher into a guru. I mean, you have to learn from the teacher, but you don't have to, like, come up with like this is the formula or this is exactly the way the teacher taught me I have to stay here you have to become yourself as an artist you have to be creative well you do and and if you're trying to expand the art form or do something unique or different you've got it you've got to do something out of the ordinary I mean I, you know I um I, I'm not the most creative person in the world but I you know I've used puppets with my show and um I uh, <laughs> I don't, why would I don't you say know. that? Wait a minute. Why, why would you say you're not the most creative? It seems like you're one of the few in the world who's made their total working career has been as a mime. I know. Amazing. Theater art. So why do you say you're not creative? That seems crazy to me. I'm going to give you your due, you know? So. Well, thank you. You know, I, this isn't really very important, but, uh, I'm just really not that creative. I'm a really good problem solver. Oh, okay. And um, and for me, I say, okay, this isn't working in my show, or I need something in my show that would do this, and and I can and then I can kind of solve that problem. Yeah, but, but that's I'm, that's that is sort of the creative process. You know, you set yourself up for a, a with a problem, and you try to solve the problem, and that's that's creative thinking. And then if you push yourself and to take some risks, that's another part of creativity. Let, let's just ask you this, how, when you, you have this idea to do a show and one thing that you described, like with the Walter Manny show, you say, I'm, I have all these different things that I know kids will like, and that's how I'm gonna, how to, is that a usual way that you approach creating a new show? How, how, what's your creative process? Well, um, those those shows in 2010 and 2011, I made two shows. One was called My Impractical Life, and the other one was Walter Manny. The first show was a it geared to the the first show. I hired a writer. Oh, mm -hmm. I, and because I I really didn't know how to write an hour long show, mm -hmm. so I hired a writer and uh, and a director. Greg Goldston directed it. Oh, uh huh. And, and uh, we, um, Greg and I, Rob, Rob Wypon was the writer and he gave us the script and we worked on it. And, uh, you know, a lot of back, that was the first. Then in tw and the following year, I thought, okay, I think I can write a show now. I saw how he did it, so I'm gonna give it a try. Mm -hmm. So, and, that, and that's how I started with Walter Manny. And um, 
uh, I, I, I kind of don't know how to answer your question. I, I don't really have a process. I should, I should probably say, you know, I, I don't write a new show every year. Not yeah. near, I was trying to calculate the other day, maybe I've created eight shows over 50 years. So it's probably five or six years between me making a new show. Well, well, and also I, I, I sympathize with you trying to struggle to say, well, how did I do that? Because I know with the shows that I've created, I've, I look back and I, and I say, I want to start something new. I was like, well, how did I do it last time? And I have no, it's like something happened, something led to something else. And I really can't go backwards and figure out how, yeah. how it happened. Yeah. Yeah. So, the creative process is very interesting to me, but it's different for each person. And it seems like it's different each time you try to do something. You know, I can, I can, I can be creative, but I have to really clear the space for it. Like I'm a de I'm a detail guy. I'm not a big picture guy. I'm mm -hmm. a detail guy and I have to get all my bills paid. I have to get my emails answered. I have to clean my desk. I have to do everything that's going to take me away from it. And then I have to block out the time, the space, and then I have to daydream, and then and then I'm at a point where I can just kind of let go and think about, okay, what could I do? What would be interesting, right? And then I have to write. I mean, I, back in the day, I used to go into the studio and stand in front of the mirror and say, okay, create something. <laughs> that never worked. <laughs> but, but you know, I I I write with a pen and paper, you, mm -hmm. you know, some ideas of what might happen. I sketch a little bit and. Um, and then when I have then when I have an idea, then I can go into the studio and try to work it together. Some I've made pieces. You, I, I there was a uh, a song once uh, uh, that I made a dance number two, and it was inspired just by the song. I've had a, a sketch or two come from a dream. Um, well, it seems like a lot. You're very open to stimuli. I mean, you're very. I don't maybe impulsive is not a good word to use, but it sounds like you're you react kinetically to what's around you once you've cleared your space and that's creativity. I mean, you're very, it's not, it seems like you're born to do this. You just are natural. You know, you know, your ingredients in your mind and body cause things to happen. That, that's apparently the case that I was. You react. I mean, that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. um, well, you before we go on to maybe your, your later career or some other thoughts, what would it, would have been your favorite things to do, like in those period, like for example, in the in the Harvard Square, or, or opening for a rock and roll band, or you know these quick I call them quick hitters, you know, like it's quick not what? long form mime as like you know in a sense, but Sketches. what did you really like to do? What, what was your signature back in those days, those early days, that gave you pleasure and the and the audience pleasure? Oh well, when I was playing on the streets and. Um opening for the rock bands. Well, that's a good, that's a good example. So my friend John said, come down to this nightclub. I want you to open for me. And at that point I had done nothing but perform for kids at schools and, and on the street. And I thought, oh, what am I going to do for a group of young drunk adults at a nightclub? So I thought, okay, it's got to involve marijuana <laughs> and, and I've got to do something. I've got to do the mime in the box because that's the best illusion going. Yeah. So I created this sketch where I, I get high and I start blowing smoke rings. I put my finger through one of the smoke rings and it's solid and I manipulate it and I stick my head through it and I climb in and I'm in the box uh -huh. and the box shrinks and I break out and I pick up the box and it shrinks and it shrinks and it shrinks and it shrinks. And it shrinks. 
take the last hit. Yeah, I so, <laughs> so, yeah. so I call I called it disjointed. <laughs> so you are responding to the time. You are responding to your environment beautifully. I mean, that's the culture of the time, and you really were able to pinpoint and capture, you know, what the pleasure of or the the, the attention of the people of that time. You know, it was it was right. It was right for the late seventies. Yeah. At some point in the early eighties, I had to ditch it. Um, Trent. I know that James says you have spent your whole career doing mime and and has anybody ever asked you or have you ever considered the question why why mime why is it that you chose to pursue yeah, yeah, good question. you have do you have a, a defense of the art form or do you have like a mime manifesto <laughs> <laughs> you guys, you guys ask the craziest questions. <laughs> um, I, you know, if I could, I'd be a stand-up comedian, really, mm -hmm. or a jazz musician. Mm -hmm. But I don't have those skills. I mean, I think I was—I actually went to UCLA thinking I was going to be a doctor, and 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 and, and dropped out because, well, because I didn't want to be there, and um, I was kind of an artist looking for an art form, I guess. Mm -hmm. And when I discovered I had, you know, I had seen Marceau as a kid on the Ed Sullivan show in the 1950s and loved it. Yeah. But it wasn't until, like you too, James, but it wasn't until I saw uh, Claude Saint-Denis that I thought, this, 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 this is a guy and he's making a living doing this. This is pretty cool. I started fooling around with it and I, I just, I had a knack for it. Like I had my, you know, my isolations were easy for me. And my intuitive sense of basic physics, you know, the counterweight and forces and stuff was the illusions came really easily for me. Yeah. So it was easy for me to look impressive to people early on. And I had a lot of success early on. And how uh, this is interesting because you're you're mirroring a lot of my background, you know, and then, and then there's this shift into the more autobiographical, the more verbal, the more maybe esoteric, like that's something you think that an I don't want to say aging artist, but a maturing artist will gradually go toward, do you think? I mean, like in your case, why did you feel you had more stories to tell that you didn't need to fit in a, in a you know, you didn't need to fit in the box anymore, but you could translate into other form of pr presentation? Um, I, I'm sorry, I didn't entirely understand that. Well, I was going to say, did you feel like, okay, you're ta talking to us about the the joint in the box, you know, all that stuff, which attracted you, which attracts people when you're younger. But when you get older, what, what is it that shifts in an older artist that <clears throat> wants them to branch out and to maybe speak more from the heart? In your case, well, how did that happen? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's just a natural maturation process of the stuff I was interested. You know, I wanted to do something new and different and, yeah, yeah. The, stuff, the stuff that I'm interested in or think about or whatever is just something that an older person would think about. You know, Tony, Tony Monaro said something to me once about um, when he was at DeCruz school, he said, he said, you know, DeCruz, these people coming back from DeCruz school and they're doing all this, this abstract corporeal stuff. He said, when I was at DeCruz, we were doing comedy. We were doing pickpockets and falling on your face and, uh, you know, and, and another, someone else said to me, um, 
I, I can't quite place it, but uh, you know, decrease, too many, too many decrease, joints and boxes. And yeah. I'm not making a joke. Go ahead. That's okay. I, I think you know that that Decrue, as he got older, got more interested in doing work that was beautiful and abstract. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I just, I just kind of a natural process. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think maybe so. sometimes when we get all uh, when we're young, we're, it's it's about um, laughter or entertainment, and then we want to find a little bit more depth to our art. I think that's a natural process because you've experienced more things in your life. I mean, yeah. it's not necessarily that everybody goes through that, but um, I mean, one of our questions is, you know, one of the questions we haven't asked is how the aging artist adapts, especially a physical artist. Right. I think this idea we're talking about of the new ideas and new ways of performing, I think that goes along with that, that there's a adaptation or a introspection that you, you're not even aware of when you're younger. And possibly the aging process brings you to that place. What about practically speaking, though? Like, how do you take care of your body? How have you been able to be as agile? I mean, we're not as agile as we were, right? But how... You know, how, how have you been able to be, feel satisfied with your physical presence over the years? I, I just use denial. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, uh, I work a little bit to stay in shape. I mean, I, I have to work out pretty much every day a bit. And um, when you say work out, do you mean like, what do you mean? Like going to the gym or like no, running? No, no, I don't, no, 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 I don't do that. Chi or mime, your own mime system? Like what do you yeah. mean work out? Yeah, I, I, so I do some strength exercises and some stretching basically yeah. um, that, you know, that I've picked up along the way, either from dance or from physiotherapists or whatever, just kind of deal with what I need to do to to stay in shape, to keep my body working properly. Uh, you know, my shows, you know, I used to do a, a handstand into a, into a plank position in my show. I used to, I used to do the splits in my show. I, um, I, I could, you know, I don't do anything like that now. I used to, you know, it's, it's funny. I, when I first started performing, I would come off stage drenched in sweat. And at this point I, 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 I come off stage oftentimes, fresh <laughs> yeah, you know yeah that's interesting i mean i think that happens with most uh you know mature artists is they find a way to economize they get to the point and so this study of effort is less you know it's more about fluidity and finding the the cracks in the wall rather than trying to beat the wall down you know it's spending all that time beating you know where the crack is right at the beginning you know um have you had any like disastrous injuries that you've had to take care of over the, in the last few years? You know, or not maybe not disastrous, but yeah. Know. Well, I, I can't. I came down with gout when I was about fifty, and I actually. Had, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know what gout is? Yeah, yeah, it's very painful. Yeah, it's very it's very painful. It's like like you can't walk. Painful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's worse than that. Yeah. And I had to cancel a, an engagement. And um, I, I think maybe the only time I've ever canceled an engagement. Wow. So, so there was that. I, I and I, I dealt with that. With, yeah. It doesn't doesn't bother me now. You see, uh, do you do you see an end to your work? I mean, is there a place where you're going to retire? 
or is there always a way to adapt and to, as long as the spark is there and the um, passion for the performance? You know? I, I really enjoy performing. I, I also enjoy making a little cash from performing. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't really want to retire. Um, I, I kind of figure that there will come a time that I won't be able to do it. I asked my performing partner, Mr. Fish of the Super Scientific Circus, uh, about that. And I said, I said, when are we going to have to retire? And he said, when we can no longer pick up these 50 pound suitcases. <laughs> <laughs> if you can't carry your props, then maybe it's time to. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, there comes a point, but I, I, I also, uh, I also, I also do some directing with kids. I think maybe we talked mm -hmm. about that and I figure I can do that into the grave. Right. Do, do you, I, I can do that post-mortem. When are, are those performances, that's very interesting to me because I've worked a lot with kids too, and I find it very, very satisfying. But do you, do, do the shows come out of uh, teaching that you do? Do you do like a workshop or is it specifically hired to be a, to direct a show? Um, and, are, and also, are you, are you creating a brand new show for each one or is it something that's already written? It's a brand new show for each one. Wow. Yeah. And, um, I've done shows. I, I, I did. Uh, I, I, I adapted a Christmas Carol with Scrooge as a corporate polluter. And <laughs> I did. Um, I did Twelfth Night. I did a one-hour adaptation of Twelfth Night with fifth and sixth graders in the in in the Shakespearean language, which mm. was which was pretty amazing. I've done. Um, I picked up at least one show from the Fringe, a one-man show that I adapted for 15 kids yeah. uh, from a Fringe artist. Um, maybe the most interesting show that I've done, I did last year, which, which a group of high school kids, it was a small school, I had seven kids, and they each chose a historical figure or a significant person. And uh, we called it, what's the big idea? Because in BC, they have this concept of big ideas in curriculum. Yeah. So uh, my original idea was to um, have them develop monologues and I'd figure out some way of putting them in a game show or something to have them present. We ended up, we had Stephen, Stephen King, Oscar Wilde, Marilyn Monroe, um, Sappho, the Greek poet, a um, couple of other characters and uh, I created a, a scenario, the kids worked on scenes and they began working with each other to create these scenes. I created a scenario where Stephen King's granddaughter says to him, Grandpa, how, how come your work isn't funnier? <laughs> says, well, I don't know, it's not what I do. He said, you should be funnier. He says, how do I do that? She says, well, why don't you talk to Oscar Wilde? He says, well, that could be difficult, isn't he dead? And she says, there's an app for that. <laughs> so Stephen yeah, King, so yeah, working with kids. So here's a two-part question. So where would a young person go? Where would you advise a young person to go to learn the craft of the, the art of mind today? And also, what do you, what's your feeling on the state of the art form today? Like, is it worthwhile for a kid to go study physical theater, mime, you know, in the different styles, you know? Um, you know, what, what's, what's going on there? Where does a guy, where does a young person go like, you know, like both of us had very little theater training before we started on our, you know, journey as a mind, right? 
Yeah. And, um, and then is it worth it? Like, what's the state of mind today versus what it was like 30, 40 years ago? You know, what do you think about all that? Well, I, you know, you, you and I were both mime stars in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. And then mine basically died in 1990. At least that was the year it happened to me. That's true. Yeah. Um, I think there was a recession going on, but in like 87 or 88, comedians started making fun of mimes on national television. Yeah. And and uh, all of a sudden I couldn't get in. I, I woke up one morning and my calendar looked like Walden Pond in January. It was just empty and white. Um, so, you know, I've basically been hobbling along since then. I mean, I, that's not quite accurate. I've done pretty well. I, I stopped playing colleges. I put together a kid's show. I, this is this is kind of funny. In 1990, I was considering a new career. So being visually oriented, I took some video production classes and I took some graphic arts classes. I ended up making such a good brochure and video for myself that it that it reboosted my it boosted my career and I continued on. Yeah, it's funny because the mind That's brain great. is the cinematic brain. I mean, the mind brain is cinematic and it is visual in that in that way. For, for, for sure, for so sure. So you got inspired and you continued. I continued, and 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 in the 1990s, something happened where uh, all of a sudden theaters were interested in children's programming. Yeah. So I did a lot of work for family and children's groups in theaters. I came to British Columbia and did a showcase here, and I booked 150 shows out of one showcase. Yeah. Which was phenomenal. Um, and I started working with my partner John Lepiars. We put together a show called Funny Stuff. Funny Stuff was a clown and mime routine, and um, this is this is this is a this is a poster. Let's see, get rid there's, of this. This yeah, is a poster from the, from the Funny Stuff Circus in Taiwan. Ah, we, we toured yeah. this in Taiwan, and then John said, uh, "Well, why don't we put together a science show?" So we adapted the show, and we made we made the Super Scientific Circus. And we have toured this all over the U.S. to large 1,000, um, 2,000 seat auditoriums. Kids pay an admission. They, they get bust in from the schools. And that's been a very successful show for us. Super Scientific Circus is actually the longest continuously running live science show in the country. Yeah. So you your, would say your it was partnership it with John is really good. I mean, you're, you have a really good um rapport with each other there's just a little bit of a video of you doing funny stuff that's that's absolutely beautiful with the uh -huh. clown and the mime together i just uh -huh. i thought it was fantastic uh -huh. so you would say you would say this work is really worthwhile i mean it's you know maybe more so than your early work because it's really providing you know uh education and, and informing you know informing and so forth the younger generation you know it's very it's, you know, the arts are important for the survival of society, of course. So do so you feel that the the skills you've nurtured over 40 years, 50 years, there's a place for them in today's world as you're, you know, as an example of what you're doing now with these shows, correct? Well, for sure. I mean, uh, I, it's great. You know, performing is great for kids because uh, for, for obvious reasons. I mean, you, you know, people need to be able to communicate. They need to be able to get up in front of uh, other people. They need to be able to sell their message or, you know, it's, 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 it's obvious why it's good. Um, 
Well, it's obvious to us, Trent, you know, but it's not necessarily obvious to the people that are um, well, the the arts yeah. or, or, or in the schools. So it's, I mean, it's fantastic that you're still doing that. So where would you, you didn't finish your thought. I'm sorry. I interrupted yeah. you. Go ahead. Um, well, I, I think that a couple of thoughts here about, uh, you know, I, I have students and, uh, when people, when I say to kids, what I say to people is do not go into this work unless it's the only thing that will make you happy. Mm -hmm. Because it's too hard to do. Mm -hmm. Very there, hard. There are there are much easier ways to make not very much money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. But if it's the only thing that will make you happy, then God bless you and Godspeed, because this is what you will do. Yeah. And it is. It's it's uh, you know it's a great. Uh, I don't know. I've had a great career. I've. I mean, there've been awful moments, but mostly I've loved it. And yeah. I feel I feel privileged to have been able to do it. And I've met lots of wonderful people, been to wonderful places. And uh, and there's really nothing for me. There's nothing better than being on stage and being able to make an audience burst out in laughter. Yeah. So you are a you are a stand up comedian in a way. I mean, it's just well, I'm a funny performer for sure. Yeah. But I mean, you're probably more skilled than a lot of stand ups, you know, just because your your toolbox is bigger, you know, and you you're more immersed in a, in a performing art you know yeah so do you think mime will ever return like you said we were stars in the 70s and 80s you think there will ever be a place for the mime as a another noted kind of accepted mainstream art form or well is it just things are going on to another dimension what do you think well i think you know my partner john studied with lecoq Jacques lecoq and he said that Lecoq said that mime is an art form of transition. And I said, well, what do you, what did that mean? And he said, well, that, that it will be popular for a decade or two, and then it fades out and you don't see it for another 20 or 30 or 40 years. And, you know, and it was at 1850s or something that Devereaux was hugely famous in Paris. And then it wasn't again until the early fifties that Marcel Marceau appeared and, and mesmerized the world with his work. So, uh, you know, I, I, I just, I don't. I don't know that mime is ever coming back in the form that right. Marceau did it, but uh, someone someone will figure out how to use the mime technique and add something to it or make it different in such a way that it captivates people. What, what is that thing that does captivate people? The thing that translates through this decades. I mean, what you, you, can you pinpoint any element of the mime art that, no matter what the culture is, the present culture or the you know the popularity of a certain presentations you know what what is it in mind that is a foundation of truth so to speak you know what works what will what does mind provide that other art forms don't that will transcend time you know do you have any idea about that um no <laughs> <laughs> i wish i knew i i i don't know you know, I, I told you I saw Robert Shields in Reno when he did a show and he was talking to me. He said, he said, well, you know, you need an angle. You need to do something different. Maybe you could do maybe you could do green face. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah, one of his favorite is you got to kill it. You got to kill it. Get out there and kill it. You know, <laughs> well, it's, well, it's funny because, you know, uh, Blue Man Group came along with Blue Body. Right. Yeah. 
-hmm. And it was, and it, you know, and that was very interesting. And Moomin Chance came along with all the full body mask stuff. I, I feel it has something to do with transformation. Like, you know, acting teachers always talk about transformation and so forth. But I think the true value of mime is it allows for a magical transformation of time and space that other forms can't do so easily in such an, a, a simple way. You know, it's, it's really magic when it's done well. But they, but they think it's also the the fact that it depends so much on the audience's um, intellectual and emotional involvement that they they connect to the artist and and they're creating things in their own imagination with the help of the artist that's performing. So yeah. it, it's not passive. It's like the audience needs to connect with a really good artist. They connect and they they are living it too. And not all art forms are like that. Some art forms are purely passive that you, you know, watch the film or whatever. Right. Or you listen to the music or or even even yeah. a lot, even a lot of theater is pretty easy to watch because everything is there. You got a set and costumes and props and a yeah. yeah. Mime and to a certain extent, live theater now requires a lot of concentration that a lot of people don't want to devote their time to. And in this phase of history, you know, I, you are always you so really negative about it, James. You're so negative. It's like it's true that a lot of people oh. might feel lazy about it, but I think they need it. I think that no, no, no. I, they always need that. No, they I didn't. Have live theater. You're misunderstanding me. I'm saying that there's that's the magic of mine that it can provide that transformational quality. Yes, I agree. It's not negative. Here's a question: Do you think a student should study with a group of people or go to one school for a while like like go to Lacoste school four times over or should they go, take this workshop here that workshop there what do you feel about this idea of accumulating knowledge to go on your path well um i i, I kind of wish i'd stayed in college and studied theater it's it just uh, uh, my family wouldn't have supported that and 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 really i I wouldn't have, I, I, I didn't think I had that kind of talent. And it wasn't until I discovered that I had a knack for mime that I thought, yeah, I, I could do this. So, uh, I, but, but you know, at this point, I kind of wished I'd gotten a degree. I, yeah, I wished I'd studied theater. I'd be, I'd be a lot better if I had. Um, but you're living, um, your career, you've been doing theater for, I mean, you, yeah. you, you are an example of, you know, you are theater. You are, you're, Which is just an interesting take on how one prepares to to do what we do, you know. It's um, but you're you're a great example of you know the raw ingredients and what it's built, you know. You know, I, to, to answer your previous question about what should you do, uh, John Lapierre is my partner. Said this interesting about Lecoq. He said after they finished the two-year program at Lecoq School, he's, Lecoq said. Don't take another class. Don't go to another school. Don't find another teacher. You have everything you need. Go out there and work. Yeah. Go, out there, go out there and create and do the work. There's a lot of truth in there. Yeah. You feel um, that, I mean, where do you want to go from here? Let's say 10 years from now, when you're 150, like what, what's gonna, what, what do you think is going to happen then? Uh, with 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 what yeah just where you want to go what's your <laughs> well i want to what do you what do you think your arc is going to go to i mean what like like right now i feel personally that i have a responsibility to impart knowledge 
Yeah. yeah. Like I've always been a teacher, but I always feel, especially now, even when I'm tired, fatigued, and you know, impatient, I still feel that I have a responsibility to pass down my information. You know, yeah. Yeah. that's yeah. one of the things I'm interested in, as well as finding new vistas as a old mind, you know, like what whatever they're gonna take, you know. Right. So what about you? What do you think? I have absolutely no ideas. Yeah. I ha I have no idea about doing any kind of new work for myself. Uh -huh. I, I kind of think maybe it'll come or maybe it won't. I'm not too concerned about it. I'm, I'm I still enjoy performing. I'm still am performing, but I've completely stopped hustling. Well, not completely, but I, you know, you know, I'm not making phone calls. I'm not sending out brochures. Yeah. Not, I just take the work that comes in. Have, having said that, I really am enjoying the shows that I direct. Yeah, because I like working with the kids, and I like every show is unique. It forces me to do something new, so I've got to come up. I've got to find a play or come up with a concept, and um, it's it's great working with other people. And it, you know, there's several things about it that's great. One of them is that you work with kids. You know, you you work with students who are better than you are. Like I had a student. I had a student who was. Um, who had the, she was delivering these lines, and as I said, I'm, I'm not really that good of an actor. My approach to acting is sort of serial emotions, like I'm angry, and then I'm regretful, and then I'm sad, and then, you know. And so this, this young woman was doing her line, and I almost stopped her, and then I thought, wait a minute, she's doing two or three emotions simultaneously. Cripes, she's better than I am. I'm just going to shut up and let her fly, you know. So you end up being able to do things that you can envision that you yourself couldn't do, mm -hmm. but you now can because you have talented students or you have multiple bodies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The yeah. other thing that's great about it is you have the pleasure of, of being in the audience and watching it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like you get, you get to enjoy the show with the audience and be proud of the students. And, and I found that to be just as, fulfilling and exciting as actually getting on stage and doing it myself. I never would have guessed that would be the case. Oh, that's yeah. so interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's very good. And it's yeah. probably um, really, really wonderful for them too to have, a, you know, a mentor and a teacher like you are directing them. So, some of my students adore me. Some of, some, some of them don't. <laughs> Are you a hard teacher? Do you, you push people? Um, yes. I mean, I used, I used, I've gotten gentler and I've come to the realization that, you know, I'm very product oriented. Mm -hmm. And in education, you really want to be much more process oriented. Mm -hmm. I will never not be product oriented, but I've come to realize that the most important thing that I can give to my students is to, uh, to nurture their self self acceptance and self esteem, mm -hmm. yeah. to help to help bring them out of themselves, to help to help them discover these unknown talents. I've had I've had kids who've never been on stage before, and and have this natural gift for performing, mm -hmm. and it just it just blows me away. I mean, you get this twelve year old kid, and and they're just like brilliant, and you're just thinking. You know, in, in, in 24 years, this kid's going to be on Broadway or something. I mean, or, or maybe that that talent is going to take them and wherever they go in their career. I mean, that's sure. sort of 
belief in themselves and their ability to express themselves that they learn through theater and mime and other art forms, that that is a useful tool for other things in their life, even if they don't become a performer. Yeah, it's the spirit of the, you're seeing the spirit of the human soul. Here, here's a question. So if you could talk to yourself as a 24 year old, like now you Trent now, if you could, if you saw your 24 year old self just starting out as a mime, I'm assuming you were 24, right? 23, 24, 21, 22. I was, what would you say, um, what would you say to your, I mean, not, not that this is going to happen to you, but what, what kind of advice would you give your younger self now looking back? First of all, I would say show up to your gigs on time. <laughs> I would say remain humble. I would say take every opportunity you can. If you get offered a show, don't not do it because it's inconvenient or because it doesn't pay enough or because it's too far a drive or because you're going to have to stay up late. I would say suck it up and do every show you can possibly do. I would yes. say I would say try to find try to continue to find teachers that know things that you don't mm -hmm. and look for opportunities to collaborate with other artists because you will learn from them that's great advice yeah that's beautiful i think yeah. that that is really good way to end our show with that advice to your younger self I agree. <laughs> thank you I agree. so much for being a part of the mime radio show trent it's been a wonderful conversation you're you're, you're welcome thank you for having me I, I feel like i'm now in the mime hall of fame you are <laughs> so, I, so i think i could probably retire now <laughs> thanks a lot trent you're welcome okay, ladies and gentlemen what episode is this, Karen? Is this episode what? I don't 30? know. It's almost 40, I think. Almost Maybe 40. 39. I'm not yeah. sure. So thanks, Trent. And we'll see everyone for the next episode next month. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Mime Radio Show podcast. Be sure to like and subscribe. 